Waiting on a tax return? Hopefully it ends up in your hands. Fraudulent tax returns due to identity theft increased by 30% in 2023. If you're in a bind this tax season, LifeLock can help. Our U.S.-based restoration specialists are experts dedicated to helping solve your identity theft issues. And all LifeLock plans are backed by the Million Dollar Protection Package. So we'll reimburse you up to the limits of your plan if you lose money due to identity theft. Help protect your information this tax season with LifeLock. Save up to 25% your first year at LifeLock.com slash aware. So our podcast is called Right and Wrong. So, are these your notes? These, <laughs> these are your notes about what we're going to say? Uh, anything is the short answer. <laughs> so how many novels did you not finish? Oh my from? God, so many. <laughs> What's she talking about? This is nonsense. Ooh, a spicy question. I love it. This is it, guys. The big secret to getting published is you have to write a good book. Yeah. <laughs> I'm out of here first. <laughs> Hello, and welcome back to the Right and Wrong podcast. It's been a few episodes since I had a literary agent on the show, but that stops here as I'm delighted to be joined by PFD's Kate Evans. Hi, Kate. Hi, thank you for having me. Thanks so much for coming. And in the in the midst of London Book Fair. <laughs> yeah, it's actually a lovely excuse to disappear to a quiet room for an hour <laughs> and talk to you. Um, <laughs> it's chaotic. Is it, I mean, for agents generally, it must be all of the fairs at London, Bologna, all of that must be kind of wild. Yeah, I mean, PFG is sort of somewhat unusual in that we have a really big foreign rights team, an amazing foreign rights team. So for them it's sort of months of chaos. Um, <laughs> and as a result, it's a lot calmer for us. Um, so we're kind of, it's it's a lot of fun being a primary agent during London Book Fair. Um, they kind of take the brunt of, of the work. Yeah, it's the lead up. It's kind of, you know, lots of books go out in the yeah, few weeks yeah, yeah. in the lead up too. And, but um, I think everyone loves the chaos. We just love to talk about how mad it is, but <laughs> it's a lot of fun. Yeah, that's the same with all big industry events, I think. Mm. But um, what what is it that, as an agent at a, a, a big book fair, what is it that you guys are sort of looking for or like kind of seeking out? I mean, for us, and again, like every every company does it different, every agency does it differently, but for for me and for most of the other primary agents at BFT, it's mostly just an opportunity to see lots of people who who aren't in town usually. So whether it's publishers who are doing foreign editions of our books, like I have an event tonight where one of my books that I think is going to be in twelve territories, all their all her publishers are going to be there, and you just don't get that many opportunities to have everyone in one place. So things like that, there's always a lot of you know catching up with people you see all the time anyway. But it's just with the kind of intensity of the fair, and then obviously there's just a huge amount of business being done around those times. You know, you you sell a lot of books in the lead up to the fair, or try to, in hope that you can do as many international deals as possible afterwards. Um, but really, it's just you know that concentration of people kind of who are present. I think it obviously used to be a much more you know, long before my time and before the internet, I think, you know, it was physically people walking around printed manuscripts and yeah, now yeah. we don't strictly need it, but yeah. I think nothing can replace that kind of face-to-face excitement. So. Yeah, true. You're, you're never going to have uh, all these people from across the world and gathered together in other situations, really. Yeah, exactly. And I think you never really know what surprising connections will come out of it. You know what, obviously it's our job to know what people are looking for. Um, but sometimes a conversation that just happens from being in the same room leads to the fact that you had no idea that somebody had this extremely intense interest in insert topic here that you happen to have an author working on a book on. Um, 
uh, and it's just that ability to ignite, ignite sort of genuine interest in a project um, that comes from, you know, just shared curiosity is something that's so wonderful about everyone being in one place. Okay. Well, it sounds cool. It sounds exciting. But I mean, I- I'm sure you'll all be very tired and exhausted by the end of it. Yeah. <laughs> Let's get back to you. And um, Peter's Fraser and Dunlop, you've been there since, is it 2014? It's 2014. I've been there forever. And I've done, <laughs> I think, every job in the building. <laughs> oh, okay. It's been a zigzaggy path. Uh, but yeah, I've been there for nine, almost nine years now. Is that where is that where your publishing career began? No, so my publishing career. So you might be able to hear I'm Australian. So I, my first publishing job was at Hachette Australia in Sydney. So I stumbled into publishing. Basically, I, I mean, which every everyone hates it when I say that, but um, I worked. I was working in magazines. I worked at Marie Claire in Australia, um, and I thought that's what I wanted to do. But it was 2012. Magazine industry was crumbling. Everyone was getting fired. Um, and I was a sort of features assistant and I was increasingly sort of looking around and thinking there's no one's job I want, you know, um, writing a lot of 500 word pieces about kale. And, um, then a job came up as a maternity cover for a publicist at Hachette Australia. And I thought I can do that. You know, I'd done a bit of PR, um, as I think everyone who's kind of working in media has at some point done, you know, um, a bit of PR work and, did it for what was supposed to be nine months and two years later I was still there and I just absolutely loved it and sort of walked into the building and thought it was everything I loved about magazines was there and everything I found frustrating about it wasn't you got to just be surrounded by fascinating people and so then did that for ages loved the industry but wanted to be closer to the start of the process um I think partially because I mean maybe I have a god complex maybe I need to control everything um but I think I loved the the part of publicity that was sort of finding out what was interesting about a book finding that hook and saying like why should people care but I wanted to work on the books themselves um so agenting is sort of the dream job in that regard you know you have that sort of negotiating figuring out what's interesting that dynamism that is you know so central to publicity but you are literally, you know, building the books from the ground up. Um, yes. So left, wanted in the desert for a bit, did uh, the Columbia Publishing course in New York, thought I'd stay in New York, and then made a snap decision to move to London, which was supposed to be, again, very brief, wasn't. Took a temp job at PFD that was supposed to be three months and gave myself a one-month sort of cutoff to make them hire me permanently. And they did in their estates department, which is looking up. They didn't have a job for me and they very kindly sort of invented one. Um, and so I was finding estates for us to take on. Okay. Um, I did that for a few months and then moved across to work on, they were just setting up a digital publishing arm. So like PFD actually had a publisher. And I guess because I was young, <laughs> um, <laughs> they were like, do you want to do this? And so I worked with, then a very se- you know, the, a person who was a very senior agent setting that up. And then I was supposed to be sort of a kind of junior associate on that. And then he left like three months later. Um, and then it was just me. And then over the next... Was that Agora? So it became Agora. It started okay. out as Ipso. So it was very much... I don't know how much of this is interesting, but I will just talk you through it. You can cut it. It was... Um, it was. It started out as Ipso Books. And the, the theory then was... Again, it was 2014, so self-publishing was still booming. And a lot of agencies were looking at their backlists and saying, we have all of these amazing books that 
were published at a time that publishers were were publishing a lot more books from one author. You know, there might be a crime writer who was publishing three books a year in the 60s. And now maybe vintage might have three of them in print. And there are fans out there who want to read every single one. And so a lot of agencies were having these discussions about like, how do we support our backlist using this kind of booming um, part of the industry? So we were setting up a publishing arm that was supposed to be about bringing those things back into print in a way that was sort of sustainable but it morphed quite quickly so that was it was supposed to be this quite sleepy operation of just kind of keeping things available for those people that wanted them but then we started taking on front list authors and we grew and the team became bigger and rebranded as agora and then i was doing that with the team until 2020 <laughs> when i had been agenting kind of on the side sort of accidentally i'd been taking people on yeah. And usually journalists, because that was my sort of background, um, and selling their books, and had had kind of you know a couple of really great books that I'd done while doing that. And Agora was growing, and my agenting list was growing. So they sort of sat me down and said, "Look, you need to pick a lane because this is very much, you know, three and a half jobs at this point, and we'd love you to agent full time, but it's up to you." And I said, "Yes, that's always what I wanted to do. So great." I, you know, had my. I cried and bid farewell to my baby in the form of Agora <laughs> and moved across to the books department in March 2020, <laughs> okay. which was a really fun time to to um, go from having a really strong team around you doing something you know how to do to like a brand new world. Yeah, um, and that's my story. So you've so like you've been fully focused on being a literary agent for about three years now. It's three years now, yeah. Okay. And unfortunately, Agora has wound down. Agora has wound down. So they are due to some very kind of, I mean, they're not, it's not boring. It's very interesting, but boring for the purposes (laughs) of this podcast, changes in the business. Uh It it just didn't make sense anymore. Mm -hmm. Um, So PFT has generally focused is now, we used to do lots of different things and we're now kind of, you know, focused on what we've been doing for a hundred years next year, which is agenting. Wow. So the the agency is very focused on that now. But that all happened after I left. So sadly, I wasn't involved in the wind down. Um, but uh, Sam Brace, who was my successor, you know, handled all of that. And I think they've launched some amazing frontlist authors who've now gone on to other publishers. So I think it it did what it was doing incredibly successfully, and the agency continues to represent a lot of those authors. So um, yes, indeed, my yeah. friend Melissa Welliver was yes. originally with Agora and now still with Lucy Irvine over at PFD and her new book just got published like yes. a few days ago. I think it's, re- it's a really interesting thing. And I think that's something that my kind of, as I said, zigzaggy, you know, path to agenting, I think has made me really interested in is like what, you know, what are these sort of unusual ways in and when are they helpful and when are they harmful? And yeah. I think there are a lot of quite predatory sort of you know services out there um that you know you might get a book out but is it is it a is it about developing you as a writer and is it about developing your career and i think what agora set out to do and i think did very well was about saying like what are all the things that frustrate us as agents and how can we fix that for our authors um and i think you know yeah people like melissa who've kind of then gone on to have you know a more traditional path uh, sort of a testament to its success. Yeah, yeah, I definitely think so. So, speaking of how zigzaggy your path was, mm. you you did you you always had your sights on being a literary agent when you moved to the UK and joined uh, PFT. 
I did. Yeah. I discovered, so I'm from Brisbane in Australia where there kind of is no media. I discovered mm-hmm. that literary agents were a thing because of a Marion Keys novel when I was about 12. <laughs> <laughs> the other side of the story, there's a oh character who's a literary agent. I think her name's Jojo. And I think it, it, I was like, well, that, that sounds like the best job in the world. But then didn't... I think you're the second agent to have discovered <laughs> literary agency through Marion Keys. <laughs> to be honest. I, honestly, I think if, if I'm the second that's admitted it, I think I'm probably the hundredth. But... <laughs> this podcast at least, yeah. <laughs> and yeah, so when I moved to London, um, and you know, when I was in New York, I'd you know that that was what I was going to do when I was there and I'd sort of been interviewing and I was surrounded by lots of, you know, was now meeting literary agents and was like, yes, confirmed. It's not just Marion Keys being a genius. It is also an amazing job. Uh, and then moved to London. And I was suddenly surrounded by all these people who their parents worked in publishing or their parents were authors or, you know, they kind of done their first internship at Bloomsbury at 16 or whatever. Um, and they were like, they always knew they wanted to be agents or they always knew they wanted to work in editorial. And it'd been really straightforward. But I think every time I meet people who have done other things, I think, it brings a really, I think it's, it's, I think it's just good for you as an agent because, you know, it is your job to sort of be gathering all of these things from the wider world and then trying to make it into something book-shaped. And I think understanding all those forces, what people are interested in, how other forms of media work, um, and, you know, similarly on the working on the digital side, like when you're doing stuff that's direct to consumer like that, you can't hide, you know, you can't hide behind hype. Amazon yes. reviewers are absolutely brutal. <laughs> yeah, exactly. Yeah. Amazon, and now TikTok, like TikTok won't hold back at, at reviewing books and things like that. So Exactly. The internet's a scary place. Yeah. So before we get into um, submissions, because it's always a very interesting thing to talk about with with agents, and it's something I know my listeners love to sort of um, hear about, is uh, I just, before, before we get into that, probably for a bit of context, um, could you tell us just a little bit about the sort of clients and books that you represent? Of course. So my list is incredibly broad. Um, this bit always takes me a while. I do fiction and nonfiction, um, which is great. I get to kind of, you know, uh, pick and choose. On the nonfiction side, um, really, really broad. So I always, I basically sum it up as books that say something about the way we live. So whether it's sort of really kind of um, deep, smart thinking books, like I had a book come out, a couple of weeks ago called The Long View by Richard Fisher, who's a BBC journalist talking about, it's like a radical reimagining of how we see time. And it's like gorgeous and lyrically written. And, you know, he did a fellowship at MIT to research it. And there's sort of that end of the spectrum. Then I do um, quite a lot of memoir. So yeah, I worked with Sophie Barracina on The Mother Project or Norwell Roberts, who was the, uh, the Met's first black police officer on his story. And, you know, people with kind of amazing real life stories. I just sold an amazing book, which has been announced um, called Chutzpah, which is about a ultra Orthodox Jewish woman who has come out as gay, um, but is refusing to leave the community and is actually living within an ultra Orthodox community as an out lesbian woman. So I just, I love a fascinating real life story through to a lot of kind of experts in their field. So represent some neuroscientists, therapists, stuff like that. Um, And then cookery and food, because I'm lifestyle because I'm greedy and I just like love beautiful things. So that's, and then that's probably less interesting to your listeners, but that's a big chunk of my list. And then on the fiction side, again, it's very broad. Most of my authors are in that sort of accessible literary space. So I love a book with, you know, beautiful writing, really insightful takes on characters, but it has to have a plot. Um, 
I have a couple of authors who were on the much, much more literary end, like an amazing sort of poet named Sonali Brassad, who's written this experimental novella, which is coming out next year. Um, but most of my authors are in that really plotty, but, you know, make you cry and, you know, kind of want to underline bits of the book area. <laughs> That's my sort of, yeah, heartland. Okay, so whilst is esoteric, are there any genres that you don't represent? Yeah, um, I don't do high fantasy, mm -hmm. uh, just because even when I suspect it's good, I don't know. Like it's, I, I think that, you know, you have to know your kind of limits as an agent. I like things that have elements of that, but okay. um, I don't do YA and children's. Uh, again, I just, you know, can't, I can't tell. Um, we have an amazing children's department um, who handle that. And so those are my only kind of hard no's. Um, everything else I'm open to, but when it does be a more genre -y, it tends to be using genre in an interesting way. So I have a book coming out this year, and I'm not saying crime is genre, but I have a book coming out in June called Speak of the Devil, which is ostensibly like super, super, super crimey. It opens with a severed head and seven women standing around it. All of them have a good reason to have done it. All of them claim they didn't. But the reason I was drawn to that book wasn't the plot and the crime aspects. It was the fact that it is this incredible exploration of sort of coercive control and abusive relationships and these amazing w women who have been through hell with the man who's now dead. Right. Um, so I love it when authors use genre devices to do quite literary things. Like I don't know if anyone ever would have bought the book if there wasn't The Severed Head and now it's being published all around the world. So I think um, I'm very interested in people that kind of blend. But yeah, those are the only genres I, I just don't do. Okay, so it's just high fantasy, uh, children's kind of stuff. Yeah, that's it. Okay, but lower fantasy, like something that has a fantastical element. Fantastical element, love it, love okay. it. Um, it's as within, and I'm sure everyone you have on here says the same thing, which is that you can talk about what you do and what you want forever, and then someone can be like, "Great, I've done exactly that," and you could be like, "I don't get it. I'm sorry." And I think that's <laughs> one of the great cruelties of publishing, right? Yeah. Um, but fantastical elements I really love speculative elements I really love interestingly I love things with a historical setting but really pure historical fiction that kind of stuff that you know is hugely popular that I think I, I get a bit frustrated with it I kind of think it has historical fiction voice and everyone sounds the same I don't do but I do love something that is set in another time and place it's just that I want it to sort of have the same visceral feelings and problems and everything that we'd have if it was modern um just with the kind of interest of another okay setting. okay i think that's a pretty good summary so we let's dive into submissions themselves and yeah. something i always ask agents when they're on podcasts um well a submission at pfd is uh first three chapters synopsis cover letter for fiction and then for non-fiction that uh, uh detailed proposal yes so as someone who represents both, you might have a couple of answers here, mm. uh, but what, when you open up a submission, what order do you go through each part and, and what are you looking for within? Pulling up to Mickey D's just for drinks? Oh yeah, that's me. Nothing extra, just perfection and a straw. Coming in hot for the coldest cups on the block. Because there are drinks. Then there are drinks from McDonald's. Mix things up with any size lemonade or sweet tea for $1.49. Perfect with our classic fries. Price and participation may vary. Cannot be combined with any other offer. Ba-da-ba-ba-ba. -ba -ba. No. 
Yeah, it's such a good question, isn't it? I, everyone has such a different um, process. Uh, covering letter, um, mm-hmm. a because it's usually in the body of the email, and b I want there to I want there to be a pitch in the email. I think some people understandably attach it kind of a letter, and it tends to be quite long. I want that pitch to be really short. Um, okay, you know, just like essentially the hook. <laughs> And that's and, the main thing you're looking for in a cover letter is just the pitch. And then what you, is it? Yeah. Just kind of, you know, and I think I really feel for people because everybody says you've got to have comp titles and you, you do, but almost no one gets them right because <laughs> you, because you, why would you, it's so hard, you know, like, yeah. and I think, you know, that I think, you know, every, I would say, you know, 70% of submissions I get say you know for fans of meg mason soren bliss which is absolutely fine it's a brilliant book and to be fair that is exactly where what the sort of thing that i'm looking for right but it needs to be more niche than that so i think i just kind of disregard comparison titles because i'm sort of like it, it's probably it's probably not quite right um so if that interests me i then skip the synopsis entirely because they're so hard to write that i never want to judge anyone for <laughs> writing a terrible <laughs> synopsis um and open the first three chapters and I just read that. Okay. Because the writing is sort of everything, right? Like you kind of can fix plot holes, but if the yeah. writing isn't there, then. The voice is, is I mean, the, the thing I've learned from speaking to lots of agents and asking these similar questions is that the voice is the, is usually the focal point of the whole yeah. kind of thing. Yeah. Do you, whilst you've skipped over the synopsis, if you read the first three chapters, do you go back to the synopsis or you just go straight for the request? I, I mean, I go back to it, but then I usually read like a bit of it and I get so frustrated and I sort of think <laughs> the person that wrote this beautiful first three chapters has written this terrible synopsis <laughs> and that's not their fault. Um, so then I just request it. Yeah, usually if I've read that first three, it's this really difficult thing, right? Because you, you try to be really good with your submissions and, and you know, do them in blocks and make sure everything's... But ultimately, if something comes in and it grabs my attention, I mean, at the last novel I signed I read the entire thing lent against the a chair in my office like there's a sofa <laughs> in my office and I, I just I didn't I kept being like oh just one more page one more page and I read cover to cover not just the first three chapters the entire book that way because it just gripped me and you know then I called the author immediately and was like I want this yeah. and realistically most things that I've signed have done that even if they fall apart like even if the plot falls apart if I'm not I'm going to read this thing like eight times, you know, (laughs) minimum. (laughs) So if I'm not thinking about it, if I'm not desperate to get back to it, it's, you know, there's always a bit of a, if you haven't signed a novel in a while, you could kind of start talking yourself into stuff and being like, oh, it's a good idea. You know, maybe I could edit it into, but I think that thrill has to be there. And I don't want to get too bogged down in whether people have done a million, you know, courses about how to write a good synopsis. Mm -hmm. I want to know whether this is a book I want to read. Yeah. Yeah, yeah. Well, I'm really hoping that soon AI or ChatGPT or something will be able to just write synopsises for us. Yeah, honestly. That'd be great. I feel like um, <laughs> sometimes when I'm really stuck on a subtitle for a nonfiction book, I'll have a little ChatGPT session. <laughs> 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 like, I just, it's just, you know, it's not great, but it does help you kind of rule some stuff out and get to the point. So yeah, maybe synopses are next. Yeah, it helps just kind of bounce. It's almost like a, your, your own little like idea bouncing machine, isn't it? Exactly. You throw some stuff around and you're like, oh, that's interesting. I would never use that, but it sends me in a new direction. Um, so get, get, getting back to submissions, uh, <laughs> <laughs> do you have any pet peeves that sort of went, that often pop up sort of like every now and again and that, that kind of 
puts you in a bad stead with the submission? Yes, I should. Yes, I do. I shouldn't be so eager to answer that question, but yes, uh, dear sir. <laughs> oh yeah. Okay. Mm-hmm. Um, horrible. And, yep. uh, you, I mean, for many reasons, a, you were expecting me to take my time to read this book and everything else. And you don't know my name equally. Don't call me Katie. Isn't your, your name's in the email. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> um, but then that's, that's petty, but it's just a, a big, a surprisingly frequent one. My biggest pet peeve is people who say, that their novel defies categorization. They say, uh, this has there's never been a novel like this before, so I can't tell you where on the shelf it sits because it's so original. Um, and I think I understand the desire to do that. Yeah. But first of all, it's literally never true. <laughs> well, yeah. And secondly, if you – if it, I think it's it's difficult because – I don't want to sound like, you know, an evil villainous agent, but you were choosing to seek traditional publishing. You were choosing to seek, you know, I did it, yeah, a major publisher. Mm-hmm. Your book is a beautiful work of art that's very personal to you. It's also a product. Yeah. And if you will not sort of see it that way, um, usually if people say, oh, it defies description, it cannot, cannot be put anywhere, it just means that it's a bit of a mess or that they don't actually know (laughs) what their book is. And I think, you know, what you want is, you know, in a dream world, you want a book to be unlike anything you've ever read because the characters take you somewhere else, unlike anything you've ever read because the writing is so, you know, sparkly and unique. Mm -hmm. But in terms of what the book is, we want things to be sort of recognizable in some way, you know, like there's a reason that most stories follow a similar structure and it's that, you know, that's, that's storytelling. That's what human beings enjoy. So sometimes people are like, you know, it's a, it's an intergalactic adventure that's also a comedy, that's also a crime, you know, and they've kind of just pulled buzzwords from every big successful book over the last few years. And I'm mm-hmm. like, there's no care and love in this at all. Yeah. So don't say that, basically. Really try hard to find where your book does sit on a shelf because if if I can't see where it sits on a shelf, I can't represent it and I and even if I, even if you convince me to do it, I'm not going to be able to get a publisher to do it. <laughs> yeah, that's it, right? Because I mean, if you if you took it on, you would have to then sit down and say, right, but I need to categorize this because mm. I have to pitch it to a publisher, and they're not going to. It won't fly that this doesn't fit in any category. Yeah, because they need things to to fit within certain structures for like scheduling and like who they're putting it next to and when they're running and things like that. Completely, I think that's the thing that a, a lot of people, when seeking an agent, don't understand is that seeking an agent is like you get an agent that's wonderful and you should be just as excited about that as you are. But then that's the beginning of the process. You mm-hmm. know, then we have to sell it, and then selling it is really just the beginning of the process. Then it's you know they're pitching an editor falling in love with your book. A lot of really amazing books have gone to, you know, eight acquisitions meetings and not ended up with an offer. And I think that's often because they can't figure out where they sit in the market. And so really doing your homework on that front. And that doesn't mean that you have to make a cookie cutter book. It just means like, how do you package that up in a way? Because also it reflects what your hopes are. So like, you know, if if I love a book, I want to also ensure that I can give that author what they what they're seeking, you know, an agent author relationship is a partnership and it, it has to be right for them. So if an author sees themselves as a really sort of experimental novelist who is reinventing the form and that book is reading as a, you know, really straightforward commercial fiction book, 
if unless we can get on the same page about what they want to achieve that could be a very difficult editing process yes yeah yeah, yeah. i guess the other thing is if someone sends you a, a cover letter and it says there's there's no other book like this mm. i would my my thought would immediately be like okay so this is a sort of experimental abstract literary fiction then because yeah. that's the only thing it could be right yeah exactly um that's what i think you would think if you hadn't read it <laughs> yeah <laughs> you might, well, this must be this then <laughs> yeah exactly it no it's be. just um it's just often I, it says to me you you don't read enough yeah you know um yeah so just i think reading slash spending a borderline inappropriate amount of time lurking in a bookstore <laughs> is a really important part of submitting yeah 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 yeah, oh, yeah i it, it it's a common piece of advice that um lots of people well lots of agents and editors will, will say is once you've you know once you've got your story once you've got your manuscript your book go to a bookshop and just genuinely think like where would you which shelf would you want to see it in mm. and like where would you i mean you don't really get to choose because it's based on where your surname lands but you know you, it's worth thinking about where you know which authors would you would you be honored to be kind of beside and sit next to and things like that yeah i agree i think that is Exactly. Who do you, where, where do you want to be? Because there are things, there are quite, sometimes quite small things that end up that can be tweaked depending on sort of, you know, where it is. And I think one of the most heartbreaking passes to get from editors is, I love this book. Absolutely love it. But it's, for me, it's falling between X and X and I yeah. need it to be one or the other. Um, and, you know, sometimes you persevere and you find the publisher that does see a way forward to kind of break it out in between those categories but if if that's not what you want you know if you if you are angling for for sort of a more specific route Mm -hmm. don't do yourself out of out of it by not looking into it properly yeah because it's also worth i've had editors on the podcast too and it's worth remembering that so you as an agent will pitch into a publisher it's going to be hard not to put it in a category but then the editor who's the person who you're essentially pitching to at the publisher mm. then has to pitch that to the marketing team yeah exactly. and the marketing team will not stand for this doesn't have a category <laughs> and and even more than marketing is sales because yeah, you know yeah, they yeah, have yeah. to go and stand <laughs> in you know in front of waterstones or whoever and say you know we essentially promise this is going to sell. And I think the thing that's really difficult is that they don't all always have time to read. Mm -hmm. So um, sometimes an editor is in an acquisitions meeting pitching a book to a room full of people that could be the most beautiful book in the world, but she hasn't managed to convince all those people to read the book ahead of the meeting. So all they're going off is, you know, a, a, a bit of it that they've read yeah. and kind of assurances of this is like this. Um, so yeah, it's really, it's, we tend to take more, agents take more risks because honestly we'll fall in love with something. We don't need to get anyone's approval, right? Like I'll just, you know, but if you don't want that to be the end of the road, um, yeah. then yeah. Yeah. I mean, that, I think there's a lot of great advice and I hope people listening will have, will have, uh, find something interesting within that discussion. Cause there, there was a lot of great stuff there. Before we get on to the final question, um, always go to ask agents. Have you ever wanted to write anything yourself? So I, yeah, obviously get asked that all the time. Um, <laughs> currently, no, I love, I love writing. And I think, you know, what's that overused Dorothy Parker quote? I hate writing. I love having written. Like I yeah. love the feeling of looking at something I've written and going, oh, that's sparkly. Um, <laughs> but I, 
I haven't had nothing has come to me that has made me want. I know how hard it is because I look at my clients do it all day <laughs> and that does not appeal. I think yeah. um, somebody gave me, it was an editor in New York once gave me like amazing advice. She was a writer as well. And when she was much younger, she was, she was accepted into the Iowa Writers Workshop and she went to the workshop and she was sitting there and she sort of had a, I think she had a publishing job. I think she was maybe an editorial assistant. And then she went to Iowa and she was like, so prestigious, you know, I'm so happy I'm here. But she just found herself sitting there. And then the only bit that she enjoyed of it was the, the workshops was like giving feedback. And she said, some people, she was like giving the advice where she was like, if you want to write, don't work in publishing because it's the same energy. And I think a lot of people have disproved that lately. Like, I mean, yeah. I have a client who's also an agent and is an amazing author and an amazing agent. So um, I definitely don't think it's universally true, but I think there is, you know, she was talking about the kind of collaborative and generative creative energy and the fact that some people get more of like get their energy from generating, from getting words down on a page. And some people really get that creative kick from seeing what's there and shaping it. Um, and I think I just absolutely love working with other people's sort of raw material. It just doesn't tire me out like you know when you know that something is the right thing for you to be doing is that you can just like do it all day and Mm -hmm. sometimes I'll get off a call with a client and realize we've been talking for two and a half hours about like would this character do this and and um I think yeah when until either that stops being fun or the desire to write something becomes so overwhelming that I can't ignore it I don't think it's going to happen um because it's so hot, (laughs) the whole process. Um, So I really respect writers so much for putting themselves out there the way they have to, because it's an extremely vulnerable act. Mm -hmm. Yeah, 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 it it totally is. And and there's definitely a distinction between, even if you're not, you know, what you work editorially with your your clients, like most agents do, even if you're not doing, if you're just sort of like uh, a writer and you're critiquing someone else's work, Mm -hmm. there's an energy that, like if I read one of my friend's uh, manuscripts and I'll come at it with a different energy because I'm critiquing it. Yes. It's, it is an entirely different um, approach. It just feels different, but there's something also really fulfilling about it. Yeah, completely. I think um, it's just so satisfying. Yeah. Kind of um, getting something, particularly when I sometimes sign things, I'm like, I will sign books at a rougher stage than some agents will. I sometimes take people on on a partial um, or because they've written something I think is incredibly compelling and I know they will write an amazing novel. Like I have a few clients like that. So okay. I'm often working from from incredibly raw, a raw place with them. And I just love that I've got the space to do that, you know, and I think, I think if I was writing myself, I might not have – just the sheer level of patience I have for other people's work. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> I know what you mean. Cause you can get, it's, it's easier to get frustrated at yourself Yeah, and then things and like that. But, um, that's, 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 <laughs> that's a great insight. Maybe one day you'll write something, but at the moment you're, you're, you're happy where you are. Yeah. Thrilled where I am. It's a dream job. <laughs> <laughs> Amazing. So that brings us to what is, um, the last question and often dreaded question uh kate if you were on a desert island with a single book which book would it be okay i used to ask this when i was hiring people this is like one of my standard (laughs) that's a good one um and everyone does dread it but i my answer is going to get me uh, people always roll their eyes at it but it's bridget jones's diary by (laughs) fielding (laughs) 
I reread it a lot anyway. And uh-huh. I actually think she's a genius. And anyone who hasn't actually read the original book should, because it is like, in terms of characterization and observation, I think it's like second to none. And yeah. I really, yeah. Um, I think the reason I would do that over, I have favorite books, right? Like if people ask me what my favorite book is, I always say secret history, like I have, mm-hmm. but there's some books that are just for rereading. And that is one of them. It's just uh. like, if I was stuck <laughs> on a desert island as a sort of relentless extrovert who loves going out, I think yeah. tapping into a world where everyone is just always three wines deep with their friends <laughs> um, is is where I'd want to be. But I think the reason that I can reread it as much as I have, and I, I mean, honestly, my copy of that book has is, is in a state, it's actually <laughs> in my office, and it is like the cover, which was once white, is now like a, a dark, deep grey, um, is that it's just, I mean, you know, obviously it is based on another classic story, but it is just... It has everything. It has love. It has friendship. It has really, really sharp observation. And I think a book that's that easy to read, but also makes you cry, but is also that like sharp, yeah, is rare. Yeah. And that's yes. why I keep reading it. <laughs> <laughs> well, that's that's a great choice. I, I mean, when you, when you built up to it, I thought you were going to say Jane Austen, but uh, you surprised me with Bridget Jones then. <laughs> just the just the 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 nineties remake. <laughs> yeah. yeah, yeah. <laughs> um yeah no i do love jane austen but i just it's never i'm not a classics gal okay okay mm. you, you like modern stuff yeah um well i mean you even you mentioned even with your the historical fiction that you're interested in you like when it has a sort of modern twist to it or like a it speaks yeah. to something that we relate to you know when like you're watching a period drama and mm-hmm. everybody has the same strange sort of flattened pan european accent and everyone and i feel like there is a literary form of that and it's a lot of historical fiction where everyone Mm. is very like flattened and i think i just i like the i like the you know the sharpness of contemporary fiction so i if it has an historical setting and if someone can bring that sharpness to a historical setting i'm over the moon oh so something like have you seen the great yes something like that brilliant i think (laughs) <laughs> it is um i mean yeah that's like the epitome but yeah i love that i love that you know i mean he's a, a truly appalling person but in such a whimsical yes. way like yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> whimsical terrible people that's yeah perfect um or like i'm working on a book at the moment which i'm extremely excited about which is a it's set in the 30s in hollywood uh and sort of a murder situation um and it's kind of, you know, all movie stars in the studio covering things up and the depression is happening sort of outside. And But it's that these people are so real, you know, and I yeah. think you kind of get that escapism of being in 1930s, 1930s Hollywood, but ultimately you're relating to these people the same way you would if it was, you know, people in London right now. Yes, exactly. Yeah. yeah, yeah. So the almost like this, and like you were saying with with genre stuff before, it's almost like the the setting is the setting's the setting, but it's if the characters are very relatable and they go through the kind of struggles that we we all kind of go through. It's something like I don't know if you watched The Last of Us. Yeah, yeah, exactly. Where it's like it, it's kind of pitched as this is a zombie show. It's not really about zombies. It's about people and just kind of surviving and and relationships and stuff. Yeah, I think if you saw like if you ran most of my pitches through like some sort of yeah if you gave them a chatbot um I think it would be like 
this is a this, but it's not really about this. Like it's, you yeah. know, I love, I love where there is a hook and a difference and a, a place that's, sort of, yeah, something that takes you to some sort of extreme. Because realistically, after what, two years where we all were trapped at home, I think we're done with like super sedentary navel gazing for a while. You know, we mm-hmm. want to see mm-hmm. things and experience things in our fiction, whether that's zombies or whether it's another time and place. Yeah. Um, but, we still want that emotional realism, you know? Yeah, yeah, yeah. That's yeah. exactly how I pitch um, Ted Lasso yes. to people. I'm like, yeah, so it's about this guy that becomes a football manager, but it's it's not about football. I'm telling you, it's not about football at all. <laughs> I am so obsessed with Ted Lasso. <laughs> so good. I, I was at it. my boyfriend's parents' place for Easter and was like, spent we, we, we spent like way too long trying to set up Apple TV for them because like, you have to watch this show. You love it so much. Like I'm like physically getting involved in their setup just to spread the Ted Lasso gospel. <laughs> Amazing. Well, Amazing. Um, I better wrap it up there, but um, thank you so much, Kate, for coming on and, and chatting with me and telling us all about your your journey and publishing and your experiences as a literary agent it's been really great chatting with you thank you so much for having me and for anyone listening to keep up with what kate is doing you can follow her on twitter at kate e evans uh and if you are thinking about submitting to kate or any of the agents over at peters fraser and dunlop go to the website you can read all about them and um you can go through all of the submission guidelines to make sure you don't miss an episode of this podcast follow along on twitter instagram tiktok and facebook you can support the show on patreon and for and for some more silly bookish shenanigans check out my other podcast the chosen ones and other tropes thanks again to kate and thanks to everyone listening We'll catch you on the next episode. Everybody in your crew identifies as either Big Mac Burger, McNuggets, or McCrispy Sandwich. But you're the filet fish Sandwich all day. That crispy fish, that savory tartar sauce, that melty cheese, that pillowy bun. Yeah, you get it. Every time. And if you love the filet of fish right now you can catch two of the classics you love for just $6. Limited time only. Price and participation may vary. Cannot be combined with any other offer. Single item at regular price. Ba-da-ba-ba-ba.